Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first live podcast of Mixed Up with Mary and Monty. I am Monty. And I am Mary. Thank you guys for showing up to episode 17. Thank you, thank you. We have made it to the Phoenix Film Festival, Mary. Look how far we've come from the cave that we're normally in. (laughs) We're now in the tent under the bright lights. It's beautiful. How, How are you, Mary? Good. I'm very excited to be part of this the Phoenix Film Festival and have our guests here today. Before we start today, I'd like to give a big shout out to the Phoenix Film Festival and IFP Phoenix for giving our little show the opportunity uh, to be up here with you today. For those not familiar with us, Mary and I are, uh, have been doing this podcast now for a little over a year. Uh, we started the podcast primarily because every time Mary and I met, we'd always talk about music. Uh, I've been going to record stores here in town since I was uh, old enough to drive, and uh, probably even before that. And uh, Mary just happened to be at every single event that I went to. Mary, go ahead and tell them a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm Mary. Um, As Monty said, we have a shared love of music. That's been the theme in my life for a long time. I've worked at record stores and for labels and other things and love to go to shows and love film, too. And so Monty and I met that way. And so this is a really great opportunity to get to talk to, about music in film and all of the things we love in a very short amount of time. So, and to have our guests with us is very exciting. We always love to have them. The uh, goal of our podcast is really to introduce mixtape themes. So we've done uh, podcasts based on that four-letter word called love. We've done podcasts on sampling. We've done podcasts on... Uh, our favorite uh, movie soundtracks. We've done favorite live performances. We've done quite a bit. Uh, so today what we're getting into is we're gonna get into some discussion with some very talented filmmakers that have their films playing here at the Phoenix Film Festival. We're gonna be talking about music, but not necessarily just music composition, but we're gonna talk about soundtracks. We're gonna talk about musicals. These are all influencing items for these filmmakers. And the guys that we have up here, music plays a huge role in all of their films. Uh, all three of them have exceptional films that utilize music. I think probably some of the best that I've seen of all the films I've seen here at the festival. Mary, would you mind uh, telling our lovely audience what we're going to do today? Yeah, no problem. Uh, thank you again to everyone at the Phoenix Film Festival. We really appreciate your support and for coming out. Uh, today we'll be scu- discussing music and film, as Monty mentioned, whether that's a score or a soundtrack or a musical or a music documentary even. So every kind of form of music and film. I have a feeling all of you really enjoy both formats. So Uh, we'll talk about the differences in scores and soundtracks, get into that a bit. The nuances, what makes them outstanding. Um, Composition and scores obviously vary. So we'll talk about that a bit more, Um, but yeah. I think we're going to have some fun. (laughs) We're lucky to have some experts again, like I said today. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Mixed Up table, our first guest, Neil Upadi. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Neil Upadie, and I'm the writer and director of Dating Daisy, a film that we were very privileged to be able to screen at the Sedona Film Festival this week. 
Uh, I am not the composer on my film, and so I'm going to leave as much airtime as I can to my distinguished colleagues that have done a lot more uh, hands-on music writing than uh, I ever hoped to do in my career. But um, music is by far my favorite part of the filmmaking process, and I've been immersed in it ever since I knew that this was an um, art form that I was going to dabble in, and would love to just share with you some of my influences and uh, observations on the craft. Neil, what's your, uh, what's your favorite band? My favorite band is Tool. Oh, nice. Nice. An Arizona lover. An Arizona guy. Good. Arizona Bay. <laughs> Our next guest, sitting right next to Neil, is Maddie Steinkamp. He's the director of Play the Documentary. Hello, Maddie. How's it going, everybody? Maddie, if you wouldn't mind telling our audience a little bit about your movie, maybe a little bit about yourself as well. Uh, Play the Documentary is a film that focuses on the importance of music education in public schools. Uh, thank you. We, we feature uh, about 65 musicians and educators from around the country and around the world that uh, uh, perform for us uh, on the film and, and to give us their, their, their passion story and why music is important in their lives. Uh, Probably the greatest thing about our film is that every single uh, bit of music in the film was completely from the live performances uh, that, that we did uh, with the artists. All the, all the background music was original pieces from uh, the artists themselves that, that we got to uh, record. So um, that was one big thing for our film, I thought. Excellent. Great. Our next guest sitting right next to Maddie is Oliver Thompson. He's the director of Welcome to Happiness. Let's get a big round for uh, Oliver. Thank you. Oliver, why don't you uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Um, I, I wrote and directed Welcome to Happiness, but I also scored Welcome to Happiness, um, although that was not uh, initially my intention. Um, I am a composer, uh, but I thought uh, I, had ha I had enough uh, influence on the final product of the movie, so I wanted another voice to come in and, and write the score. Um, but things have a way of working out uh, or not working out sometimes. And it, it just ended up being the most efficient and um, I don't know, the right call for me to just go ahead and, and uh, score the film. So that's, that's why I ended up wearing a, yet another hat. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Maddie, what's your favorite band? I forgot to ask you that. Uh, that's a complex question, you know. You can give us a few. You can give us a few. I would say that uh, Weezer uh, definitely molded my uh, entire career. Nice. Uh, both in, uh, I was originally started my career in the music industry, and I definitely went after bands that were original sounding, like Weezer is. Um, you know, they're singularly sounding. Like if you can, you hear a Weezer song, you're like, that must be Weezer. Um, and I think they've kept that throughout the years, and that's that's got to be the one. Their newest album is fantastic. I totally agree. Oh, I really liked it. Totally agree. Oliver, favorite band? I think we're going to talk about it later, right, with my favorite doc. My oh, favorite okay. band is Fish. All right. Uh, I like a lot, a lot of music, but, but they are just, I've been obsessed with them since I was in high school, and they just keep, I keep coming back to that well. So. Excellent, excellent. No, I'm just going to say, I like that we're varied in our favorite bands here as well, so it'll be a nice mix of things. Um, to go over kind of the topics that we'll be talking about today. We're going to do favorite scores, favorite soundtracks, favorite musical moment, which could be anything in film, really, as long as music's involved. Uh, favorite musical, and then favorite music documentary. We're going to blast through them. So without any further ado, everybody, let's turn this up to 11 and get it started with our first pick. <laughs> I'll be going first today. We're going to talk about our favorite score. 
March of 1977. A film being scored for release. Uh, little did the composer know at the time, but the film he was working on would become one of the most popular films of all time. Beloved films of all time and his score became one of the most recognizable themes. Composed by John Williams. Can you guys hear it okay? Yep. Turn it up. Turn it up. There you go. Can you guys still hear us okay? One does not play down and play off John Williams. So John Williams responsible for every single part of that, you know, that how beautiful Star Wars came to be. And uh, this is from episode four, New Hope. Uh, very, about two years before this, John Williams scored another film uh, that ended up winning an Academy, his second Academy Award. What, can you guys name what movie that was? It was Jaws! Nicely done. Nicely done. <laughs> this uh, Star Wars was a, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people who in an audience would agree, a formative film for me as a young man. And uh, currently, my four-year-old son requests Star Wars every time we get in the car. You've so raised him well. We, uh, we Millennium Falcon to school and back. <laughs> Mary, go ahead. How, it's hard to follow up Star Wars, by the way. He, he really went for it there. Yeah. Um, so I've picked for composer and best score. It might sound a little funny, but I did choose Braveheart <laughs> by James Horner, who composed that in... 1995, which is crazy to also think about how that movie oh, yeah. is that old now. Um, but it was nominated for Best Original Score. It lost to Il Postino that year, of all, all right. the things. Um, but as we talk about score, it's really important to me as a piece of the film. It's a character as well. And I see this. This is from the scene where the funeral is happening. William Wallace's father is passed, and that little girl comes up to him and gives him the thistle. And in my mind, I can't not see that scene when I hear the music. So I feel that's very important to scoring. So, Evoking that emotion, correct, gentlemen? Yeah. Right? Um, Oliver, just kind of a off-topic. Your film has a mix of like live music and a score. One thing I right. really liked about your film was the fact that it felt like when the, uh, when the score was present, the composition was there, that there was really like... I mean, it felt like there was almost like a, a transition, like you knew that this is when the emotional stuff was going to be happening. And then it played well into a lot of the live tracks that you had going on as well, too. Uh, who was your, uh, did you perform the songs? The songs are my friend Peter LeClaire. Gotcha. He's a very, very talented singer-songwriter who I've known since high school. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted the movie to have a, a one singular voice. Uh, you know, there are two other uh, artists it just ended up working out as well, but six songs are by Peter, so he is, you know, predominantly the, the voice you hear. And I, um, yeah, I knew I wanted that, so it was it was a no-brainer to go to him because I've been a huge fan of his since we were 17. Is that a is that a hard thing for you guys to do? As far as like, let's say that you get a, comp, a, a someone to compose your music, and uh, you're there with him, kind of creating it. What happens if, like, it comes out and you're like, I, I don't really like that? Well, the interesting thing about. Uh, that's a, that's a great question because Peter wrote six original songs for the movie based on the temp tracks that I had laid in and went while I was editing. I didn't like any of those. It's not that I didn't like them. They were good songs. They weren't doing it for me. Uh, and then I ended up, 
I didn't know how I was going to tell him that. It was a really, uh, uh, it was a, uh, I was a, a bit uh, anxious. Uh, and then I, he had been sending me other tracks, though, as well, throughout the, the months. Just, hey, here's another thing I have. You know, it seems kind of cinematic. I don't know, maybe it'll work. And I started listening to that stuff more uh, openly and realizing, oh, man, no. And it completely redefined how I saw the movie and how I heard the movie, I should say. So I, I got out of my own way with what I had decided were the, was the tone of each needle drop. And I decided, and, you know, and I realized Peter has given me something that's even better. Yeah. You Let's know? talk about temp love for a second, right? Yeah. Uh, as you're cutting the film, you want it to still have that same emotional impact for, uh, for your audience that you're doing test screenings with. You put all these scores from other films, songs inside, and before you know it, you can't imagine the scene without... Exactly. Without the, you know, the score from Braveheart in that one section. And then your composer comes in with a fresh idea and you're like, mm, well. You make it sound more like Braveheart. Which, which is so, which is the worst thing. You would never want someone to come to your writing and say, well, you know, if you could just eternal sunshine it up for me a little bit, right? And so what a stifling process it is to come into that. And I think that uh, spotting sessions are one of the most important parts of engaging with a composer. And, uh, and, and, and when, we, when me and my composer, Jay Vincent, went through that on Dating Daisy, uh, we spoke about it in a, just, I spoke to him the same way I would speak to an actor or a cinematographer in terms of painting tone and mood, listening to the entire film. In fact, I think that the cut I gave him, I never gave him the temp. We discussed the temp, but I never let him hear it with the temp. Um, and that was his choice. And, and that's so important to, you know, go into it fresh with the intention. Um, it's really, really key. Yeah, I agree completely. And I was fortunate enough, like I said, I had hired another composer initially. Um, so I did get to do a spotting session with him. And I think in some way, that was at least benefit. It was kind of like, I, 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 by doing it with another composer in the room, assuming they, at the time, they would be the one writing the music, it, it did help me figure out once I ultimately ended up being the one who composed it, but I still got to do a spotting session sort of under the impression that someone else would be composing the music. Excellent. Okay, Neil, go ahead. Sweet. Um, I've chosen for uh, composition uh, Howard Shore's amazing uh, opera that he set to Lord of the Rings, which is the reason that I'm a filmmaker. Um, and I think they're going to play for you uh, Return of the King, The Lighting of the Beacons. And there's a couple things about this score in general that, um, that is just so amazing, iconic, and, and works so well. You know, he really went into um, leitmotif. Uh, Howard Shore used leitmotif to great effect here, where every character, every country, every culture had a theme, and, and what you were hearing was almost like an opera. You could have turned off the picture and still understood what was happening and what the stakes were and who the players were on stage just from the themes, right? And that's a very old, classic way of doing things that you don't see to that extreme much anymore. Right. And in uh, The Lighting of the Beacons, this is when Gondor finally calls for aid. You see uh, the lights across all the mountains light up, and from Gondor to Rohan, uh, it's you know set off, and you know that they're calling for help, right? It's and an incredible scene. It's an amazing yeah. scene because in each of those films, there is a moment where basically um, Peter Jackson was like, "Now it is time for the music to do its thing," yeah. and he just cut loose. No dialogue, no nothing. It's just time for the music to go. And I remember being in the theater getting absolute goosebumps 
as the music hit that final crescendo. Because, man, music is a way of just cutting through the garbage. It speaks directly to the heart in a way that nothing else possibly can, you know? And this is this is moment. It fills in the gaps. <laughs> like, and, like, and right at that moment, when you hear the Gondor theme at the fullest that you've ever heard it, there's so many layers of symbolism we're talking about, right? This is hearkening back to this nation at its strength. This is, um, this is the full development, the full orchestra, and you never th hear the theme this powerfully ever again. And what was even cooler was then going back and seeing how we had gotten there. Uh, when you see Boromir, right, who is the, basically the Prince of Gondor, and in the very first film, in The Fellowship of the Ring, when he's at the Council of Elrond, and he's talking about, like, Gondor will be the one that protects you, and by the blood of our people, or your land's kept safe. Howard Shore brought in one French horn and played the Gondor theme over that, and then you never heard that again until you actually saw that country and people in film three. That's amazing setup and payoff, and the theme you just heard is the ultimate climax of that development. That's awesome. Very cool. That's one of the best descriptions for the Lord of the Rings I've ever heard. It's yeah. amazing. That's great. That's amazing. Fantastic, Neil. That was fantastic, buddy. <laughs> okay, Maddie, go ahead. So my family were a bunch of comedians when I was growing up, and Mel Brooks was a major part of my life. Uh, I, me and my, my girlfriend were talking about my favorite film of all time, I was like, I, I think Young Frankenstein? Uh, but uh, this is uh, Blazing Saddles. Uh, the opening uh, main title theme Perfect. is uh, Battle of Rock Ridge. Mel Brooks wrote, I believe, the entire uh, score and, and lyrics he did. He did. of every song in the movie. And I love the idea that Mel Brooks has where the it starts off with, he rode with Blazing Saddles. And then as it comes into the town, Everybody that's walking by is singing the lyrics of it, and it like it totally messes with your mind a little bit. That is like this is I just love that kind of sense of humor. Um, I love throughout the film it comes back into the film the same the same song, and it and it gets sadder at some parts, and it gets slower and more minor, and then at the end it's like this heroic theme song at the end. Well, it does kind of feel like a musical as well, in Blazing Saddles, because the comedy. You know, you've got to have that like tuba sound and that like clotting horse steps things. Exactly. <laughs> but this is a very good pick. I'm very yeah. excited about Blazing Saddles being played in the tent for you all right now. Did you say Young Frankenstein's your favorite? I, I think Young Frankenstein's my favorite. I, I've been debating it. The thing is, I think that the series, the the uh, the um, the series films, the uh, the trilogies, and gotcha. have a. I, I like those yeah. more than a single film. Yep. So I think in a single film aspect, I think Young Frankenstein's my favorite. Excellent, excellent. Nicely I'm done. A I'm a fan of putting on the Ritz, for there you sure. Go. There you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Putting on the Ritz. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus okay. performance by Maddie, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Oliver, go ahead. So I, I had chosen um, the score to A Clockwork Orange by, uh, I, I think what we're listening to is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony proper, which is, of course, very, uh, it's, a, it's a big part of the movie, um, I, 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 which I love uh, enormously. I was, you know, Wendy Carlos's uh, original score, the electronic music score, which is both original and um, renditions of these famous pieces like the William Tell Overture and, and, the, and, and what have you, is really what 
haunts me when I watch that movie right from the opening frame. Right from the op- not even opening frame, the opening just orange screen that says A Clockwork Orange on it. I mean, and then you hear that music and that close-up. It's just, it's so incredibly uh, haunting and amazing. And, um, yeah. It's all of your senses working together. Yes, exactly. Being, being visually and audio, like, everything's working together right. to totally creep you out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It just set this incredible tone. You know, all of that movie really does create an identity as well, too, for each one of the characters. Right. And, uh, you know, I, you talk about Kubrick and kind of you know, his control that he had with everything. And you, I always think to myself, like, like it would have been terrifying to be a composer on that film, I think, because, right. I mean... Well, it's Wendy Carlos, so yeah. he, she think, is going to do whatever really he, great, she wants uh, to do. You know, uh, working relationship. But I, I can imagine any anyone working under Kubrick, I think there was probably some... What's the word I want to say? Just intimidation? Some, yeah, intimidation, or, yeah. yeah. A little bit. Well, and Kubrick also used a lot of classical music, right? Yeah, right. I mean, throughout 2001 and then... And, and, and Clockwork, Clockwork. Like We were like the ninth yeah. that we're listening to right now, which is such well, an amazing... One of the coolest things about uh, the Clockwork score is how he, he brings in Beethoven um, right at the beginning, gives you a visual association with that to a certain violence, right? Right. But the main character doesn't associate it with that. Exactly. And no, then to, to, to him, it's just beautiful. It's exactly. Just, and then at the end, when he's being subjected to all these images, and he's like, "Not Ludwig van," and everything, <laughs> all of a sudden you realize uh, the association. It's it's you know that is probably the most self-reflexive part of that film. Right. Um, you know, in terms of I play you something, I show you something, I create this the connection. Connection. Yeah. I create this connection that. Had no meaning before, yeah. you know. Right. Um, it's Pavlovian. I know, and I for mean, the character, really, the character yeah. in the film to all of a sudden be like, "You've perverted Beethoven by associating yeah, it with exactly. this." It's, it's amazing. It's so amazing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're moving on to favorite soundtrack next. Favorite soundtrack. The most difficult category we have. The most, I, I would say so. Well, yours is so good. Monty and I almost like think it's like I I, I almost I, I was saying earlier I was like this that's not even fair. It's not fair. But I just saw that it's as like a fair. Prince album. That's like the greatest <laughs> album ever. Can recorded. we just do that one and then move on to music moment? <laughs> right. Where are we on the clock here? I'm a I'm a I love Prince. I think Prince is baddest man in the world. Amen. And agreed. Yes. You know, at five foot whatever, five foot one, and uh, his his purple outfits. And at one point in time in his career, he was like, you know what? I don't want to be Prince anymore. I want to be, I want to be this, right? And he went by the uh, artist formerly known for a little bit. But there's something about uh, Purple Rain that I think, uh, no, it's just, just, hold on, hold on. It's just, can the rest of the podcast just be listening? We're just going to listen to the entire Purple Rain soundtrack from here on out, guys. How, how do you not, <laughs> like... I told my son one time, right? I told him one time, he's screaming in the backseat one time. I told him, I said, hey, 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 hey. There's no talking during Purple Rain. <laughs> Did it work? It worked. It worked because I don't get that serious with him. But I turned around, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no talking during Purple Rain. <laughs> Monty and I have talked about our favorite soundtracks quite a bit. And we've talked about Prince, I don't know how many times. Yeah. The man can do quite a bit. Has right. he done a score? No. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so, yeah. It yet. seems like he should have by this point in his career, but 
Anyway, we have Purple Rain. Prince can do whatever he wants. I mean, I, I think a Prince right. score would be amazing. Yeah. Right? You know? This was released the in... Cherry Moon might be considered that's a it. score. That's a very good yeah. one. Yeah. But, uh, that's also just another album, too, I think. Yep. I don't know. True. This was released in 1984. It's the first time that uh, the revolution was given credit on an album. So, uh, yes, Prince, everybody go out and get, a, get Purple Rain. It's the greatest <laughs> soundtrack of all time, in my opinion. <laughs> And another 80s classic is my pick for the next one up here. Um, who here has seen Xanadu? Oh, look. Yeah, no we, one. Got <laughs> we got one. <laughs> go do yourself a favor <laughs> and go rent or download or buy Xanadu. Have you guys all seen Xanadu? I haven't. I have not. Oh, <laughs> nice. So one side of the soundtrack is done by Olivia Newton-John, the amazing Olivia Newton-John. And then the second side of the soundtrack is all done by ELO, Electric Light Orchestra. So it's a split soundtrack between the two of them. And the soundtrack is probably a hundred times better than the film, but the film itself is really fun and very 80s. It's all about the muses, actually. It's about this guy who works at a record store who's painting the album covers, and then this girl rolls up on her rolling skates, on her roller skates, and is a literal muse, and her six sisters have all come to Earth to inspire people. So if that doesn't inspire you, know, you to at least just you know, watch guys, the film. When you guys go home, because I know you're going to go home and watch Xanadu, like, right after this. <laughs> I am. If it inspires, like, the next great film, right? We're coming back on here. We're going to talk about it next year. That's Absolutely. That's your muse. Fantastic. And then the other thing, as a film nerd, do you guys know what Xanadu is in film world? Anyone else? It's from uh, Citizen Kane. Kane. There you go. Yes, I figured. Does it's have anything to do America's with this? America's own Kubla Khan. Xanadu is—it's an homage oh, to cool. that. So homage. it's kind of—I figured that was a good one for Phoenix it's Film fantastic. Festival. So anyway, so this is Olivia Newton-John magic. What we've been listening to in the in the background here. I feel excessively wonderful right now. <laughs> okay, Neil, go ahead. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is my pick for favorite soundtrack. Um, and it, it picks up on an amazing tradition that I think was uh, really started by American graffiti yeah. in terms of using music of a period to completely paint a tone painting of, uh, of, of the area you're talking about, right? Um, and I think Guardians did, the reason I picked it is because A, the music all has a very cohesive through line, right? Just to read the set list, you got Hooked on a Feeling, Spirit in the Sky, Fooled Around and Fell in Love, the Pina Colada song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And, uh, and that is such a bizarre choice to set against sci-fi in the first place. But then the fact that the entire film is about his attachment to this mixtape that has so much to do with his family. Um, really, and, and then the fact that the Kevin Bacon references and everything keep on coming back in. I, 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 I think the they just found it. It's almost like the movie is an excuse to play these songs. Right. Um, and so when we're talking about soundtrack, I'm like, well. Yeah, and it's the perfect mixtape. It's a exactly. literal mixtape exactly. made by it, his it, mother. It, it embodies, it embodies everything about a soundtrack. The movie is a soundtrack. So there yeah. you go. And we've talked about, I mean, the thing, the reason, one of the reasons Monty and I do this, mixed up with Mary and Monty, is about mixtapes and those people that make them for you. So a personal connection that he had to his mother in that, like you said, set against the totally crazy sci-fi setup and superhero world is such a wonderful juxtaposition. And it puts all of us there with him. 
immediately. Go Star Lord. I uh, I came across a uh, website where they built uh, individual soundtracks for every character in that movie. Uh, some of the ones for uh, uh, for Groot were amazing. It's like a ten track, and it all had to do with wood. Awesome. <laughs> okay, Maddie, go ahead. Uh, Garden State soundtrack was uh, a big moment in my college college years. Uh, that does date me a little bit. Uh, but the Garden State soundtrack introduced me to three bands that uh, later kind of became some of my favorites. So the Shins. I love uh, the Shins. I, am the, I love, love, love the Shins. I love that Iron and I love Iron and Wine. I love that Iron and Wine did a, a, a postal service song, in, in the Iron and Wine uh, style, and I became a huge fan of the postal service, and was a big fan that they got back together that about two year, you know a few years ago for years the, ago, yeah. the festival run, and I mean it, it it I think that it was such a weird thing because. In college, you're you're getting all this new music. <laughs> you go. I went to a college. I went to NAU up in Flagstaff, Arizona. Go so Lumberjacks. You have, you have uh, ev- yeah, go Lumberjacks. Uh, you have every type of person coming into college, giving you all this new music, and you're like, whoa. Um, and I think that 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 soundtrack definitely introduced me to a lot of great music that was that was definitely like paving my way of like, mu- you know, music music passion. Yeah, what? Garden State did a ton. I mean, oh, yeah. for the shins alone, it did wonders. And Zach Braff, I mean, mm. it's like his mixtape, you know? That was his soundtrack to his life yeah, great in the story. The film know? became so. such, a, such an emulated model for, yes. uh, for indie filmmakers yes. wanting to, like, just jerk themselves off. <laughs> and, and the soundtrack as well, yep. much emulated. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Oliver, go ahead. Well, I've uh, chosen Goodwill Hunting, um, and it's because of it turned me on to Elliot Smith. Which there's two soundtracks on this list that changed my life as a musician, and it's Purple Rain and Goodwill Hunting. So, when I was um, 14, I saw I was I had started playing the guitar when I was thir- 13, and uh, I remember seeing Purple Rain on Thanksgiving uh, when I was 14 or 15. And I just, uh, it's when I realized I had just been, you know, enjoying um, thrashing out to Nirvana and, and, you know, and and Weezer. And, you know, and then when I saw that movie, that was the first time I I heard lead guitars. Being a lead guitarist has become, I guess, kind of my primary instrument. It's it's the thing I actually practice, you know, it's the thing I, you know. and it's because of Prince. It, it made me. So I'm sorry. I'm talking about your choice, not okay, my no, own. No, um, but uh, he's talking then, about Prince again. Goodwill Hunting um, was a similar thing, you know, where it turned me on to Elliot, and Elliot changed how I heard music. He changed the kind of music I listened to. He he changed how I wrote music. He made me realize there's a, a darker side to things that can be very beautiful, and that it is. I I think lyric writing was a. a a scary thing for me and being personal was a very scary thing for me and this guy just lays it out on the line in a way I I had it's not that it never existed obviously um, but I had never really heard it to, to the the degree of, of Elliot Smith's just honesty and his it's so personal I mean it's so, so personal, personal and just incredible and yeah it changed my musical journey just one 
yeah, one soundtrack to a movie, you know, or two soundtracks really in this. In another film where it really introduced an artist to a public. Absolutely, I mean, suddenly Elliot Smith went from obscurity, more or less, you know, to in the public eye to being on stage at the Oscars. I mean, it was. And everybody collectively at that time, when you see Elliot Smith on the Academy Awards, I don't know about in your life at the time, but I was surrounded by people in record stores and things, and we're like, yes, yeah, <laughs> Elliot Smith just got on the Academy right. Awards and won. Yeah, Thank you. yeah. I was like, like sitting there kind of thinking, moment. going, I didn't really yeah. know. It hadn't happened for me, I think, until a little, like maybe the yeah. movie came out on, on video, you know, yeah. on VHS. <laughs> and um, that's when I really got turned on to him. So I do remember him in that white, Armani suit, yes. though, playing at the that Oscars. And I remember just thinking, what? Well, this is... I mean, Celine Dion just sang, right. and now this guy's <laughs> right. just sitting there with his acoustic guitar. It was a beautiful moment. It's a good moment. And, and Good and Will Hunting, I thought you were going to talk about uh, Afternoon Delight. I mean, that's the song that... <laughs> oh, right. That film for me. Oh, or Jerry Rafferty's um, Baker Street actually is an, has an awesome Amen. moment when, when you know, they, they get into that big brawl and yep. then they, they bust into... Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to go on to favorite music moment in a film. Favorite mu- music moment in the film. Uh, I'm going to take, take it back a little bit. It was the beginning of a film resurrection for this actor. At the time, nearing the middle of like the 1990s, people had kind of forgotten uh, the storied past and fame of this actor at the time. Uh, people forgot him strutting down the streets of New York. Uh, the memory of the leather jacket, slick hair, Danny Zuko, uh, was fading at that time, you know. Uh, I think people really only knew him for, at that time, for Look Who's Talking. We're talking about John Travolta, and I'm talking about the movie Pulp Fiction. And I still get chills. I still get chills when they're in, when they're in the restaurant and they step up on stage. Jack Rabbit Slims. Jack Rabbit Slims. They're gonna do. And it's, uh, I mean, I love Chuck Berry. I'm a huge Chuck Berry fan. So for Terrence cousin, Marvin Berry. <laughs> this is your cousin. You know that new sound you're looking for? That's, that's movie you know, humor. You know, my mom was a big fan of like, uh, you know, Saturday Night Fever and Urban Cowboy, you know, these movies that Travolta played like a big role in. And uh, I remember she hated Pulp Fiction because she couldn't get past the first like 10 minutes of cursing and swearing. And then she walks back in the room and she sees Travolta dancing and she stuck around. And uh, I still tell people that's like a, a big moment for me because I, I think at that moment it was, it was really kind of realizing the impact that not only like Tarantino was having on film at the time, but you know, just what he was doing further than what he was putting on screen. You know, these were like very like meticulous choices that he was doing, pulling songs out of like obscurity and you know bringing them popularity yeah he's a, i mean where would a quentin tarantino film be without music there is no oh, yeah. such where i mean between pulp fiction jackie brown well, even like w- some of the themes I that he puts even. into his into like inglorious bastards yes. uh you look at like uh him bringing uh Ennio morricone yeah. back for that's huge hateful eight i mean and he I mean, finally gets the recognition that he deserves at the awards this year but like you said, he, Quentin brought people back into the light. You know, oh, he yeah. brings attention to the people that he considers legends on any level. But yes, good pick. Lance. I'm going to put you guys in the spot. Let's go uh, favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. 
Quentin, uh, I'd probably go with Inglorious Bastards. I think that uh, he had moments in that film where he was the most reserved he's ever been. Um, and I really appreciated that. I think that the first chapter um, with the, uh, the dairy farmers in France is some of the most unbelievable Tarantino that I've seen. Um, you know, Hans Landa is just terrifying. Yeah. Um, in one moment, pulling out this redonkulous pipe and, you know, talking about, uh, you know, comp complimenting the guy's cows and his daughters and, and then pretending that he's, you know, exhausted, his, uh, exhausted the extent of his French and then realizing that wasn't a gag just to get rid of subtitles. That had a plot relevancy to not letting the people under the floorboards understand him. It's amazing. amazing. <laughs> Maddie? I gotta say, Kill Bill. Nice. I, I it was the first time I, I do. I know this is a horror horror film centric uh, film festival. I could never do blood and guts like growing up, and Kill Bill opened that door. It was like it's blood it, done I think it just was the, it, in the right way. It was way. like comedy blood, so it was like, yeah. oh my gosh, this is so much. Oh yeah. You know, one of my all time favorite movies is Kill Bill. Uh, and, and I say that. There, are, there aren't two Kill Bills. Yeah. There's one Kill there Bill. One he was just bill. forced to split it up. Yeah. So I'm talking about the four-hour film oh, yeah. called Kill Bill. <laughs> the, whole bloody, and, um, the whole bloody affair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I, I just think it's incredible. It's like one of my favorite movies ever. Excellent, excellent. Well, I've talked about True Romance before. You know how much I love that movie. I know how much you love it. I wish he would have directed it in some ways, but Tony Scott did okay. Yeah. I am a uh, Jackie Brown fan. Yes, you are. Jackie Brown is my... I, uh, I love R&B. I love soul music. So that movie was right up my alley. Okay, Neil, next one. All right. Um, favorite music moment. Um, I'm going to talk about Passion of the Christ. And uh, this, uh, the cue is Crucifixion. Uh, John Debney did something really amazing with this score. Um, while the film is taking place in... Uh, Israel, in ancient Israel, the score is actually using a diverse set of instruments from all over the world. It's really a global score. And, uh, and that's important because, you know, uh, from the filmmaker's point of view and his beliefs, what he's talking about is an event, the crucifixion, uh, which has um, an impact on everybody that has come and will come. And it's a global moment. It's not about this one man at this one moment in time. So you have strings from Western music, you have uh, Middle Eastern woodwinds, you have what you're hearing right now, which are Japanese percussion. And now it's such a cliche to hear taiko drums and everything, but um, here it was used with such amazing um, restraint. And the thing that I find really amazing about this is that in this part of the film, uh, Jesus is uh, you know, being nailed to the cross, um, he's put down, his clothes are torn off, and this is when you're hearing kind of the more dramatic horror music, and it's kind of what's playing right now is the moments just leading up to that. And then what's about to happen right now is a flashback to the Last Supper, where um, he then explains, and we see him telling his uh, disciples what's about to happen, right? And so in that moment, the music gets completely pulled back to this prophecy and all this chaotic noise that you're hearing right now kind of just gets pulled away to something very, very, very simple. Um, and then when finally we cut back to the moment of the crucifixion and, and okay, so this moment where we've quieted down is now when we've gone back to the Last Supper 
and his prophecy is laid out. And then when we come back from this to the nail going in, instead of, there you go, instead of going to something horrific that is amplifying what you're seeing on screen with nails going through flesh, instead he goes to the most amazingly beautiful aria and it's just this intense major chord harmony that just rips your heart out. It's just the most beautiful thing. And it's so thematically appropriate to undercut the violence of the crucifixion with what Christians believe is the ultimate moment of triumph over death and the devil happening in that moment. That's a moment of victory. That's the moment that's celebrated. And the way that was translated filmically here is just incredible. I think John Debney had a truly inspired moment of choice in uh, going against type there. Excellent. Awesome. That's, that's fantastic. Um, we're yeah, running out of wordsmith. You're like, a, you just, I could listen to you all day. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. We're, we're running out of time. More. We're running a little bit out of time. So I'm going to let you two get your last two in real quick. And then we'll wrap it up real quick. So go ahead, Maddie. Uh, the original Dr. Doolittle, uh, Rex Harrison, uh, it's a musical, but uh, he sings to a seal, or uh, I believe it's a seal, uh, when I look in your eyes, and it's I, every time I've ever seen it as a kid or an adult, I cried. I don't know anybody that can watch the scene without crying. It's the saddest, most beautiful scene in the world. Um, it's, just, it's just a very, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very powerful. Did you bring your Rex Harrison hat? No. no. <laughs> Autumn comes, summer dies. Yeah, that's no, good. Don't cry. Am I saying the next thing too? Uh, let's. Uh, you can do the next one. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Take that back. Oliver, go ahead and do your last one. Okay. Well, there's two listed here. I don't know which one we're gonna listen to, but I have this time tomorrow by the Kinks and Layla by Derek and the Dominoes. Um, the two films being The Darjeeling Limited and Goodfellas. Um, that, just that moment when that, that kink song comes in in, in, this, um, in, this, in this movie, The Darjeeling Limited, uh, is just really incredible. It's, it's one of those uh, music moments, marriage between picture and song, um, that when I got it on DVD, uh, I would just rewind that shot over and over, over and over and over, over again. Because um, I, I just love the way, yeah, oh, that's just so good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think uh, Martin Scorsese uses popular music uh, better than, than anyone, um, you know, and... Uh, he expands my iTunes library. Yeah, he's I... just the king. <laughs> and um, that, just this whole montage uh, with the, the, the Layla, the ending of Layla with that piano, it's just... The most incredible. I mean, Layla is the star of that whole last scene. Absolutely, and we're just I mean, seeing all yeah. those dead bodies listening to Layla. It's, it's, it blows my mind. Excellent. All right, guys, we're running out of time today, so uh, we're going to wrap it up before we finish our last selections here. So uh, let's give a hand for our guests today. I'd like, thank them for coming out. And uh, guys, why don't you tell us where we can see you? If you got a website or anything, we can help you get word out about your film. Go ahead, Neil. You can check us out at datingdaisy.com. Uh, we're going to be at New Filmmakers LA April 30th. So if you're in LA, please come and uh, see the film. And it's just been an absolute privilege to be here in Phoenix. Thank you. Uh, you can check out playthedocumentary.com. 
Uh, we will be having uh, future screenings uh, on our screenings page there. Uh, you can also see it here at the Phoenix Film Festival on Thursday at uh, noon, I believe. Excellent. Uh, welcome to happinessfilm.com, uh, I believe is the website. Uh, I'm learning more and more that I'm just the worst marketing person on the face of the earth. And I think that's the website. I'm 98% sure. So uh, if not, I apologize. And let me know what is at welcometohappinessfilm.com because I'd be very curious. Uh, <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so we'll much. Thank you so much for coming out and helping us out tonight. Thank you. Greatly thank appreciate you. it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I am Monty. And I am Mary. Have a night. All right. Give it up for Mixed Up with Mary and Monty one more time. So that is the conclusion of the IFP Phoenix seminars. Once again, IFP Phoenix is the organization that I run, and it is the organization that is responsible for all the organizations.